tradition. Rituals are performed that enact the knowledge associated with that specific place. In this context, rituals are repeated acts, and no more should be implied by that word. The degree to which they are religious ceremonies depends entirely on the specific ritual. One elder explained to me how singing the names of the sacred sites along the song lines created a set of subheadings to the entire knowledge base, a place for knowing about every animal, plant and person. The song lines could be sung when moving through the space in reality or in imagination. By repeating the stories of the mythological beings through songs and dances at sacred landscape sites, information could be memorised, even if it was not used for tens, hundreds or thousands of years. Songs are far more memorable than prose. Dancers can depict animal behaviour and tactics for the hunt in a way no words can do. Mythological characters can act out a vivid set of stories that are unforgettable. I recognise that Aboriginal elders were using their song lines in a similar way to the ancient Greek orators who mentally walk through their buildings and streetscapes from location to location to help them memorise their speeches. They called it the method of Loki. Modern memory champions memorise shuffle decks of cards using the same method walking through their homes or churches, grand buildings or public spaces in their imaginations as they recall each card. They call them memory palaces. A few months later, I travelled to England with my husband Damien. He had also returned to university, in his case to study archaeology. My goal was to spend time at museums looking for representations of animals among indigenous collections to frame my book. Damien was off to visit archaeological sites. The downpour on the day he'd planned to go to Stonehenge was so intense that he decided not to stop on his journey to Cornwall. On a fine day, he wanted to try again. I just wanted to get to Bath and indulge in Jane Austen. Dutifully, I walked around Stonehenge, tourist earphones providing commentary. At that early stage of my newly acquired obsession, I was so immersed in my subject that I naively expected orality and memory to be the focus of every commentary. The disembodied voice with the perfect English accent told me about the various theories but didn't mention orality or memory or anything about the builder's system of knowledge. There was a great deal of very important information, but I was immune to it, listening only for my pet topic. Stonehenge was initially a simple stone circle built at the very start of the transition from a mobile hunting and gathering lifestyle to settling and farming. What would happen, I asked myself, on Salisbury Plain that day? to the knowledge that these people had acquired over thousands of years and embedded in the landscape. Farming doesn't happen rapidly. The transition takes time. How would the settlers avoid forgetting all their songs and stories and knowledge of the animals and plants if they were no longer visiting the memory locations their ancestors had spread across the broad countryside? How clever of them, I decided. 
they've replicated a series of landscape sacred places in their local environment. What could be more perfect than a circle of stones, each stone representing a former sacred location, each stone acting as a memory aid? I didn't realise that this had never been suggested before. As we were funnelled out through the gift shop, I started checking the indexes of books for orality, having by this stage forgotten that I'd never heard the term until a few months before. I searched every book for any mention of orality or memory and found nothing. I bought the most recent book I could find, written by a bona fide archaeologist. Flicking through it, the word illiterate caught my attention. In the field of orality, the word illiterate is used for those who cannot read or write within a literate culture, while those with no...